as Mark mentioned, we are, we're in a sermon series looking at the book of Jonah, though this is the one week, I think, where the Spirit led me in a different direction other than evangelism. So we did that last week. We'll be back at it next week. Maybe this will still have something for you. We'll see. Uh, I'd like to ask you to open uh, with me to our text for this morning, Jonah chapter 2. Uh, We're actually going to start with the last verse of chapter 1, but Jonah chapter 2, that's on page 754 in the Bibles, in the pews, if you are using those. And uh, yeah, we began a a four-week sermon series on this book last week. There's four chapters in Jonah, so we're sort of dedicating a week uh, to each chapter until we get to Lent, and then we'll uh, actually move into the book of Hebrews. This is what our text says, starting with chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose before you to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, when we left Jonah last week, he was fleeing from God and accidentally saving a bunch of pagans against his will. This week, however, we find him crying out to God from the belly of a big fish. And to understand how Jonah got there, we need to back up and start by talking about a couple things that we didn't get to last week when we were looking at Jonah chapter 1. Now, like we said last week, there are two main themes to Jonah, right? First, there's the theme of God's sovereignty, which is God's rule, his reign, his control over all things. Like we said, there is nothing in God's creation that he doesn't oversee and administrate. That's his sovereignty, that's his power, that's his control over everything. But then second, we said there's the theme of evangelism in this book too, which is sharing the gospel, preaching and talking about our faith with others. And like we said, we looked at that quite a bit last week. I actually didn't intend to look at that so much last week, but you know, every once in a while a sermon gets away from you. So we'll eventually get back to the theme of evangelism, Uh, but for our purposes this morning, I actually want to focus in more on that first theme, the one we only hinted at last week, which is the theme of God's sovereignty. Uh, You see, like I said last week, pretty much every word of every sentence of every paragraph on every page of this book hammers home that idea, the idea of God's sovereignty. And again, let's just back up and, and look a bit at some of the parts of chapter one we didn't get to. First, God's word comes to Jonah. That's always an act of God's sovereignty. 
We'll talk about this more in a bit, but we actually see that right in the beginning of the Bible in the creation account in Genesis 1, right? God's word is the means, the method, the vehicle by which he creates, ordains, and sustains things. We see that in the beginning in creation. We see it throughout the Bible in God's relationships with people, and we see it at the beginning of this book too. The first verse says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God's sovereignty is expressed in his word. But like we saw, Jonah disobeys that word. He ignores it. He disregards it. He runs away from it. And so what is a sovereign God, a God who is Lord of all creation, a God in control of everything and everyone, what is a God like that to do with a wayward prophet who ignores his word? Well, it's a bit ironic, but God actually provides the means for Jonah's escape here. After all, he wants to run away from God and head for a far-off place called Tarshish. And so he goes down to the port in Joppa, and what does he find there? A ship sailing for Tarshish. As one commentator I read uh, put it, what thoughts must have flashed through Jonah's mind at that moment? Was God being merciful to him after all? Was this a sign from God prospering him despite the condemnation of his conscience? Did God in some ways sympathize with Jonah and understand the very difficult position in which he had placed his servant? After all, Jonah might well have thought he could have been mistaken. Perhaps God did not really want him to go to Nineveh. With such a frame of mind, the provision of a berth on a boat to Tarshish was perhaps a gracious providence indeed. And so he went on board. God's sovereignty, Jonah must have thought. If God really wanted me to go to Nineveh, then he would have made sure that this ship bound for Tarshish was not sitting here waiting for me in the port. He must be okay with me heading to Tarshish instead. Except for... That was precisely part of God's plan. Because God did want that boat there, and he did want it heading for Tarshish, and he did want Jonah on board. Only he wanted all of that not for the reasons that Jonah wanted it, but rather for his own reasons. You see, God had something else in addition to that boat that he wanted to send Jonah's way. Because once Jonah was on board, once he was off, once he was heading to Tarshish, God sent a great wind to blow on the sea to make it pitch and roll and to whip it up into a great storm. And this is where we start to see God's sovereignty at a granular level. First, in an attempt to save the ship, the crew starts throwing cargo overboard, and the captain of the ship, in search of more that they can get rid of, goes below deck where, lo and behold, he finds Jonah asleep in the hold. Simultaneously, the sailors above, in an act of desperation, decide to cast lots to figure out who is responsible for this storm that they're dealing with, and God directs the lot to select Jonah. So Jonah comes up on deck, and the sailors question him, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah answers, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm, because I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And so Jonah is hurled into the depths, and yet God's sovereignty continues even there. 
Because as the first verse of our text this morning says, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In other words, again and again and again and again, we see examples of God's sovereignty here. First, he proclaims his word. Then he arranges the boat. Next, he sends the wind. After that, he leads the captain to the hold to find Jonah. At the same time, he directs the lot to select Jonah. Then he has him hurled into the sea, where finally he provides a fish to swallow and safeguard Jonah on his submarine journey back to land. In other words, what we get here in this book is a picture of the comprehensiveness of God's sovereignty. As Jonah continues to flee away from and descend, literally, away from God, God chooses not to give up on him. Rather than forsake him, God continues to direct, ordain, and oversee every single aspect of Jonah's life. Even as he sinks into the depths, the darkness, and the deep of the ocean, God is there right beside him, right with him, caring for and preserving him every step of the way. And this is where we start to see some parallels to God's work in creation. Now, this is going to seem like a bit of a nerdy tangent, but I think it's going to pay off for our understanding of Jonah, so just try to stick with me through this. All right? What do we read at the very start of Genesis 1? The very opening words of the Bible. This is what we see. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We've talked about this before, most recently in our sermon series, looking at faith and politics. But the picture there in Genesis 1 is a picture of creation in chaos. Verse 2 says that the earth was formless and empty. The Hebrew for those words are tohu vabohu, and what they literally mean is empty to the point of lacking order, void of structure or organization, absent of form or shape. And then right after that, the text tells us that there was darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And just so you know, both darkness and water are symbols of chaos throughout Scripture. And so what Genesis is telling us, right there from the very beginning of the Bible, is that before God started creating, before he started making everything, before he started speaking things into existence with his word, the earth was in a state more or less of total anarchy and chaos. It was lacking in shape and structure, devoid of order and empty of any form or framework. Until God starts working on it. He starts arranging and organizing it. He starts putting things in their place. In verses 3 through 5, he says, let there be light. And he separates the light from the darkness, removing the chaos of darkness from his world. And then in the very next verses, he does the same thing with the chaos of the water. In verses 6 through 8, we read, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, 
and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Uh, to really understand what's going on there in Genesis chapter 1, we need to talk a little bit about something called ancient Near Eastern cosmology, which is really just a fancy way of saying the way ancient people viewed and understood the world. But it's the kind of term that you get to use when you've been to seminary, so I like to throw it out every once in a while just so everyone knows how pretentious I am, uh, which is very. Uh, we have an image of this, right? Um, yeah, perfect. People back then basically understood the earth, right there, as sandwiched between two bodies of water. So up above, you had the waters above, as Genesis 1 calls them, the upper seas, as it literally is in the Hebrew. And then down below, you have what's called the Tahom, or the great deep, the waters below. And this is what Genesis 1 is talking about when it says that God separated the waters. It's saying that he pushed the waters above above and kept them up there, and he pushed the waters below, below, and kept them down there. He was removing the chaos from his creation so that he could make space for his earth and cultivate the goodness and beauty and flourishing of it. In other words, Genesis 1 gives us a picture of God as an organizer, Okay, as someone who arranges his world and does everything he can in whatever direction possible to remove chaos, disorder, and disarray from it so that he can cultivate the goodness that's left. So that's what's going on in Genesis 1. God is imposing his control, his power, his sovereignty over the forces of chaos like darkness and water, pushing them to the edges of his creation so that they no longer can threaten this world that he's building. By the way, the flood, if you read the, the account of the flood, is a great example of what happens when God removes his control. Because what it literally says is that the waters above start raining down and the waters of the deep come bursting up. But you can look at that later on today. Now with that in mind, where is Jonah in this text? Where is he in chapter 2? Like where is he physically? Where is he located? Where does he find himself here in Jonah chapter 2. He's down here. He's in the deep. He's in the waters below. He's in the Tahome. As the text says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. What Jonah is basically saying there is that he has fallen into the chaos, the disorder, the darkness that God pushed out of his creation in the beginning. That's how far down he has gone here. He has hit rock bottom, literally. There is nowhere down further for him to go. That's how far he's fallen from God's grace. And he's stuck there. Because there is no coming back. There is no salvation. There is no hope of return from a place like that. He's simply going to drift around, stuck down there in the cold, dark depths, wrapped in seaweed, barred in forever. My friends, that's what sin looks like. 
At a basic level, sin is an attempt to reintroduce into God's world the chaos that he has removed from it. And we get caught up in it. That's what happens with sin. We try to reintroduce chaos into God's creation, but it catches us in its tentacles. But then Jonah says this, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. All of a sudden, Jonah switches his tune here in this chapter. He starts praising God and singing of his sovereignty from the belly of the fish. He starts worshiping God and glorifying him. He starts lifting up his name and giving him his due. Why? Because he has realized something. There in the belly of the fish, Jonah realizes that God's sovereignty extends even to him, even to the deep. Not only can God separate the waters, create a vault between them, and push them to the edges of his creation in Genesis 1, but it turns out he can rescue from them too. He can reach down into those depths. He can withstand them, and he can save his servant Jonah even from a place as dark and deep and chaotic as the Tehom. The point, in other words, is this. There is no chaos. There is no disorder, no disarray, no matter how dark or destructive, where God is not in control. His sovereignty is supreme. It extends to everything, and there is nothing in all creation that can limit, short-circuit, or restrict it in any way. To put it another way, there is no place that Jonah can go. No scheme he can come up with and no depth to which he can sink that God cannot find him, rescue him, and still make use of him for his purposes. As Jonah himself says in verse 2, in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listened to my cry. I don't know about you, but that gives me great comfort as a Christian. It gives me great comfort for at least three reasons. First, it reminds me that God can use us no matter what skeletons we may have hanging in our closet. And I mean that, by the way. This isn't just me as a Sunday morning preacher saying nice things, okay? I really believe that. For instance, have I ever told you the story of Abba Moses? Uh, Abba Moses the Black, or Moses the Robber, as he was known before he became a Christian, was a thief and murderer in 4th century Egypt. At one point after he stole a bunch of sheep from someone that he had a grudge against, uh, the authorities were chasing him, and so he went and he hid in a Christian monastery. And while there, something changed for Moses. He ended up being so impressed by the monks' faith and their dedication to the Lord that he converted to Christianity himself. And giving up violence, he became a monk. In fact, he en actually ended up becoming one of the most famous monks and teachers in the early Christian monastic communities. And he taught hundreds of other people how to live as faithful disciples of Jesus before eventually being killed and martyred for his faith. A thief and a murderer who became a monk. The point is God can use any of us 
No matter what we've done, no matter what's in our past, no matter how we've slipped up, fallen short, and made a mess of our lives, God can still use us. If he can use Jonah, if he can use Abba Moses, he can use us. That includes, by the way, in the midst of our present disobedience. That's the second comfort I take away from this passage. You see, Jonah's not dealing with the ramifications of some past disobedience here. Instead, he's dealing with the ramifications of his present disobedience. He is actively running away from God here, actively ignoring his call, actively disobeying him, and yet God uses him anyway. As one commentator I read put it, what God is going to do, he will do. If he is determined to save Mary Jones, God will save Mary Jones. If he is determined to save John Smith, God will save John Smith. But notice, God can do this through the obedience of his children, as he does later with Nineveh through Jonah, or he can do it through his children's disobedience, as here. Either way, God blesses those whom he will bless. Certainly, I think God would prefer to use us in our obedience. He would prefer that we listen to him, heed his call, and do what he's asking us rather than use us in our disobedience. And certainly, this doesn't mean that we can disobey simply because God can use our disobedience anyway. That's what the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to refer to as cheap grace. The point is simply that our disobedience, like Jonah's, doesn't stop God from doing what he's going to do. His sovereignty succeeds, his power persists, and his will will be accomplished one way or another, regardless of what we sinful human beings do or don't do. Which brings me to the final thing that comforts me, which is that, like Jonah, in spite of our sin and rebellion and disobedience towards him, God, in his grace, chooses to save us. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, not once we had cleaned up our act, not once we were perfect, not once we looked all squeaky clean, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's his sovereignty. That's his grace. That's his power and desire to save. And that's also the gospel. Jonah, I think, actually gives us a perfect one-line summary of the gospel at the end of his prayer here in chapter 2. In verse 9, he says, I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, and here it is, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Ed Clowney used to call that verse the central verse of the Bible because, as he said, it's the whole of the gospel right there in one verse. Salvation is of the Lord, he would say, and then he'd always repeat it as if he was in awe of it himself. It's of the Lord. And it is. That's what we believe, right? Like Jonah, we are sinful, disobedient, rebellious, wayward people. Like Jonah, we are in a mess of our own making. And like Jonah, there is no way out, no way up, no way for us to save ourselves. And yet, like Jonah, God reaches down. He stretches his hand into the depths. He withstands the disorder, the darkness, and the chaos of our sin. And in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, he redeems, rescues, and renews us so that we can live as his people again. Salvation is an act of God's sovereignty. 
It's all through him, all to him, and all from him. It's all his grace, all his mercy, all his loving and faithful kindness to us, no matter what. And when you know a grace like that, it changes your heart. As Jonah says, salvation comes from the Lord. It's of the Lord. And it is. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we spend our lives trying to earn things. We try to earn the grade so that we can get the GPA, so that we can earn the scholarship, so that we can get the degree, so that we can earn the job, so that we can earn the money, so that we can buy everything it is that we want. We do this in our relationships, too. We try to show our best selves, put our best foot forward so that others will like us and want to be with us. We are caught up in an entire lifestyle of earning things, and yet when we come to you, there is nothing we can offer you. But we don't need to, because in your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness and love, you forgive us our sins. Salvation comes from you. Help us to trust you.